Well, as I mentioned on Realm a couple of weeks ago, I'm sure most of you read that, that if you've been a part of Christ Church for more than one Christmas, you've noticed that we sing carols, Christmas carols, uh, every month of December, but we pause to focus on the incarnation during our sermon series in um, Decembers of alternating years. Um, in 2018, our focus was on Christ as our prophet, priest, and king, um, as our suffering servant, and as Emmanuel, God with us. In 2019, we remained in our study of Leviticus. Um, in 2020, we began our study of Luke in November, and so we were conveniently in chapter 2 when December rolled around. Uh, and then in 2020, we were still in Luke, <laughs> um, but we continued uh, in our path and, and remained within Luke chapters 16 and 17. And then, of course, or I guess that was in 21. 20 began Luke, 21 began um, we were still in Luke. And then in 22, uh, of course, we began our nine lessons and carols back in November. And so, uh, and we're going to conclude that the first week of January, the first Lord's Day in January. So we will actually be an extra five weeks than we have done in the past. Uh, and, that, and the fact that we do that puts us in a pretty unique position because um, there are those who believe uh, that we as believers and the church should celebrate Christmas the entire month of December every year and are pretty surprised when we don't. I don't know if you've run into that, but I run into that. Um, they're surprised when we don't do that. Uh, some will go as far as to say that we as a church are obligated uh, to do that every December. Um, and if they don't mention the incarnation, but they do at this point say that we should be celebrating Advent. And of course, our response is, and, and maybe this would help you if you run into this situation, our response is that our consciences are free from the commandments and traditions of men and are, be, are to be held captive to the Word of God alone. And when we go to the Scriptures, we find uh, that um, we're not commanded anywhere. It's okay to pause, and it's useful to pause and focus on the incarnation. Um, it's okay to pause, and it's useful to pause, and we do pause, but it's, it's not something that's commanded there in Scripture. But there are also those on the other side of the spectrum that uh, believe that believers in, in the church shouldn't celebrate Christmas at all. Um, and are surprised when we do pause and focus some uh, you know, three or four sermons on the Incarnation. And our response is and should be that um, it's okay to pause and it's okay not to pause. Right? We can do both. Uh, as long as we remain in the limits of um, the regulative principle of worship. And if you're interested in that, you can go to chapter 47. It's part three of our book of church order. It's fascinating reading, um, but you can find that in chapter 47, and it explains um, what the regulative principle is and how we are to stay within that. Um, so sometimes we pause for one week, sometimes we pause for four, sometimes we pause for nine. Um, now, if you've also been a part of Christ Church for more than one Christmas, you uh, may or may not remember the quote I'm about to read, because every year, those alternating years, at least one sermon contains this quote from Sinclair Ferguson. He says this, 
Christmas has become a secularized and commercialized season. But there's an old Latin phrase that's translated the abuse of something shouldn't be allowed to destroy its proper use. So the best cure is for Christians to celebrate the real meaning of Christmas. Speaking for myself, he says, the more I have been able to hear or preach about Christ's coming, the more help I have received to focus on what really matters during December. Otherwise, he says, I'm swimming against the tide with a Scrooge-like spirit. And he's, in parentheses, he writes, bah humbug. And if so, I not only have no joy in celebrating the incarnation, I lose all sense of joy completely. No, what I need is what the great Scottish theologian Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection. Knowing more about Jesus and His coming brings a joy that is both deeper and more lasting than all the tinsel and glitter celebrations around us. You and I know that it doesn't take much to reach the point of bah humbug around this time of year. If you think about it, the commercial onslaught now begins in September. It used to be October, and now we're even, even before, um, not even just before Halloween, but we're an entire month in advance. And of course, we, then we're bombarded with the idolatry and the lack of contentment within the human heart the, the evening of and the day after Thanksgiving, when we're supposed to be grateful to the Lord and content for the things that we have. And then there's the, sentim- the, the sentim- sentimentalizing and romanticizing of the season with all these feel-good stories of the transformation of Grinches and and Scrooges and frozen hearts being melted uh, by the warmth of kindness and love. And then more so year after year, Christ Himself is just irreverently patronized. And the irony is that what's, what's being replaced by all of these things during the season is the celebration of the only one who is not only able to bring about true change, particularly in the heart, but also able to forgive and to heal and to comfort and to provide peace in the midst of the brokenness of our world. And of course, that one is the Lord Jesus. So I'm going to encourage you, and I do this every, every alternate year too, I want to encourage you this evening, we're in Luke 2, verses 1 to 7, and I want to encourage you uh, to, to maybe set aside your pen and your outline. I know that's difficult for some of you, um, but you can go back and listen later uh, and take notes, because I want us to just simply listen to the story. I want you to, to open your Bibles and to, and to follow along in Luke and And listen to the story of Jesus and His coming. And my prayer has been and my prayer will be in just a moment that we would, that God would grant us all that expulsive power of a new affection for our Savior. And I pray that we would learn something new, maybe gain a better understanding about our Savior and about uh, our Lord Jesus. And my prayer has also been that that He would grant us a deep abiding joy and a a profound peace and assurance of our Savior, of our salvation that only comes by His Spirit, who is at work within us. Let's pray before we begin and ask Him 
uh, to do those things. Father, as we come uh, now to the preaching of your word that is authoritative and inerrant and sufficient, I'd ask that you would, in these moments, uh, speak to our hearts, that you would drive the doubt of dark away, and that you would use the room that you create within us to plant and to cultivate a new affection for Jesus. May we come to know more about Him and His coming, and may it bring a deep and abiding joy and peace and assurance. Use me in these moments as you see fit. I am weak and needy and in need of your Spirit to do something good for you and for the church. So may that be so. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, those of you who were here back in November of uh, 20, uh, you may or may not remember that Luke wrote this letter, wrote the gospel to a man by the name of Theophilus. And what he was writing was, uh, or his goal was to write a concise and orderly and verifiable history of Jesus of Nazareth. He wanted, um, well, and his purpose was to write so that Theophilus would be certain concerning the things that he had been taught. So in other words, he wanted Theophilus to know the facts were the facts. He wanted Theophilus to know that the things that he had been taught had actually happened. Right? They were a part of history. He wanted Theophilus to know that everything uh, that he had been taught was a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy concerning uh, the Messiah. And so he wanted Theophilus to know that everything that he had been taught concerning Jesus had significant theological, redemptive, and salvific meaning. And that included his birth. So while you'd think, with that context, while you'd think that Luke would have described the birth as having this great deal of pomp and circumstance, since it was in fact a birth that put the power and providence of God on display, uh, since it was a birth that, that fulfilled prophecy, and since it was a birth that secured our redemption, and it was a birth that would actually lead to the altering of the calendar, you would think that he would include the pomp and circumstance, but the reality is he couldn't because it didn't. It, the birth didn't include any of that. The birth was relatively insignificant. In the words of the 90s Christian group for him, which only less than half of you remember, there was no crown. No throne, no big parade, no fanfares played, no jubilant display. Joseph and Mary were newly married. And I say, he used that word betrothed, I believe, because Matthew says that she had the baby and, and was still a, uh, still a virgin when she had the baby. Um, so, therefore, the marriage hadn't been fully consummated. I also believe they were married because they traveled and left Nazareth to go to Bethlehem together alone, which tells me that vows had been spoken and shared. But the trip wasn't a honeymoon. Um, it was a trip of, that, that would honor the governing authorities and the powers that be. Caesar had decided that he wanted to make sure that he had the money that was, he believed was his due. And so he 
he, says, he, he, he puts forth an edict and says that everybody must return to uh, their hometown to be counted uh, so that they can be assessed and then they can be charged the proper taxes that could be therefore collected. And so Mary and Joseph leave Nazareth to go to Bethlehem because that was David's birthplace. He was from the line of David, as we just, um, as, as Aaron just read from Ruth chapter 4. And Mary didn't have to go, but because they're newly married and because she was about to give birth, she went along with him. Joseph walked and she probably rode a donkey. And we can imagine her being grateful for that transportation, even though the slow pace and her condition and the traveling uphill and being on the back of a donkey, she was going to feel every, every step and every misstep. Um, she was going to feel the, the terrain beneath her change and her balance. You know, was, I mean, she was working out her core. She was trying to maintain balance on the back of that animal. Left her sore to say the least. There's no way to know how many days they were on the road, but we do know that the trip was long enough when they finally arrive in Bethlehem that there's no uh, private rooms or semi-private rooms available, and so the only place for them to go is, is to be uh, put up in an animal stall. We don't know if that animal stall was actually underneath an inn or if it was under some or adjacent to a single room, uh, a, a single room home or if it was just in the shepherd's cave nearby. But whatever it was, it was full of animals, and the odor in the, in the stale air was probably prevalent because there was not going to be any chance of anybody taking care of the animals because there were too many people in town that needed to be taken care of themselves. So the, the tile floor and the cushioned bed and feather pillows that would have provided uh, comfort in a palace was nowhere to be found for this king and his family. Dirt, hay, and rocks were going to have to be their comfort. So what Mary's son deserved and what he actually experienced was, was anything but, uh, well, it could have been more different. And while her accommodations were less than desirable, they were more bearable than the back of that donkey, but even though uh, she got relief when she got off. It was short-lived. As any mother can attest, you, you're dealing with an aching back. You're dealing with sol swollen feet. And you're getting internal body blows from elbows and knees, from the babies doing somersaults inside. Getting comfortable would have been almost impossible. We're not given an exact timeline, so we don't know when the contractions started. It could have been, as many of you know, those contractions begin. Um, as time goes by, they grow closer and closer together. They become more intense. Mary grows louder in her response. Probably not a silent night. And her breathing led to pushing and the pushing to exhaustion. And when the baby finally arrives, he arrives with amniotic fluid all over him, and in his nose and ears. He's got a strange pigment to him, and his head's cone-shaped for being pushed through the birth canal, and he's, he's attached with an umbilical cord. 
no midwife. Joseph's going to have to do. Neither of them have done this before, so there's no, and, and there's no one around to ask any questions, so Joseph's got to figure out how to cut the umbilical cord. He's got to clean him up. And Mary's mom may have packed swaddling clothes, but probably not, so he's got to cut his robe into strips so he can wrap up the baby with arms tight to keep him physically and emotionally secure. And he lays him in an animal trough. In the words of Ken Geyer, with barely a ripple of notice, God stepped into the warm lake of humanity without protocol and without pretension. In the little town of Bethlehem that one silent night, the royal birth of God's son tiptoed quietly by as the world slept. The conception may have been supernatural, but the the birth was completely natural. And the only thing more meek than the birth, or I'm sorry, the only thing that could eclipse the meekness of the birth would have been the disgrace and shame of the eventual death. Now, what I, want us to go, what I want us to do is to go back to verse 6. Verse 6 says, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And this means more than just, well, the nine months were up and it's time for him to be born. When Luke says the time had come, he's, he's saying that the time of fulfillment had arrived. In other words, the birth was premeditated. The birth was purposeful. And therefore, very significant. In one sense, the birth is insignificant. In one sense, the the birth is very significant. And to say it's very significant is actually an understatement. Because the time had come for God to fulfill His promise to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15. The time had come for God to fulfill His promise to Abraham in Genesis 12.15 and 17. The time had come for God to fulfill His promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. The the time had come for God to fulfill His promise to the people, His people, through the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. The time had come for the suffering servant, the warrior king who would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, to arrive. As you heard me say many times in our study of Luke, the long-awaited, the fulfillment, the time had come for, for the long-awaited, much-anticipated Messiah to arrive, to be present. And so we, ask, we, we have to ask ourselves, why did he come this way? Why did he come as a baby? Why did he come through a virgin? Why was he human at all? And what I want us to do is spend the rest of our time together looking at five specific answers to to those questions, five intentions or purposes of the incarnation. And the first is this. It happened this way for the purpose of habitation. God's goal, we need to remember back from our study of Leviticus, God's goal of creation and redemption, 
was to dwell with His people and for His people to dwell with Him. But due to sin, that became impossible, at least from our vantage point, from our perspective. We weren't going to do anything to remedy what had happened. And in Exodus 25, after their deliverance from Egypt, we read that God instructs Moses to tell the people that they're to build a tabernacle or a tent of meeting. And the purpose of that tabernacle or tent of meeting was so that he may dwell in their midst. And those words, tabernacle and tent of meeting, are different, but, uh, but they're interchangeable. Uh, when the word tabernacle is used, it's referring to the place where God dwells. And when the word tent of meeting is used, it refers to a place where God and His creation, or where the divine and the human would meet together. Michael Morales puts it this way, the tabernacle has a twofold theological meaning. It's first the, in, the dwelling of God, Yahweh's home. And secondly, the tabernacle is also the way to God's house, that is the way to God himself, to engage with him in fellowship. Stated differently, he says, the tabernacle is not only God's house, the place of his presence, but it is also the ordained way of approaching, of approaching the divine presence. So it's both. Now with all that said, I want, I want you to listen to Colossians 1.19 that we read as a part of our preparation of worship. Paul says, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then, of course, in, when we read John 1.14 that we'll look more closely at the first Lord's Day of 23 it becomes unarguably clear. John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, or tabernacled is the word there. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. By the incarnation, God came and dwelt with His people once again. Jesus was God with us. He was the ordained, he, he was God with us, but He was also and is also the ordained way to the Father. He's the ordained way of approaching the Father. God in the person of Jesus dwelt among the unclean and the diseased and the broken and the hopeless. He did remain veiled, but that veil was flesh. And He could now be seen and touched and approached by those who had been kept at arm's length or more than arm's length in the past. The incarnation had the purpose of habitation. Secondly, the incarnation had the purpose of glorification. The incarnation is one of many facets of the history of redemption that reveals that salvation that the salvation of man is something God brings about, not something that we bring about. Just as God created life out of nothing in the beginning, and just as He created life out of a, a barren womb, the barren womb of Abraham's wife Sarah and Zechariah's wife Elizabeth, He also created life within the womb of Mary who was a virgin. Life was created by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit 
And in the words of, again, Sinclair Ferguson, Joseph did nothing. Yet God also works in our humanity. Jesus didn't drop down into the manger from heaven, but was conceived by Mary. But she was passive, not active. She couldn't conceive the Savior on her own. And so it is with our salvation. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God raised us up from spiritual death to spiritual life by the same Spirit. And we ask why, and and the answer Paul gives is so that no man could boast. And brothers and sisters, how many times have you heard me say this? We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. The incarnation, right, had the purpose of glorification. Thirdly, was the purpose of satisfaction. As the writer of Hebrews said, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. We needed a human to do what we humans could not do for ourselves. We needed a human who had not been corrupted by sin or had been tainted by its guilt to be our substitutionary sacrifice, to pay for our sins, to satisfy God's wrath. To reconcile us to Him. We also needed a human to live a life of perfect obedience, to fulfill the law again in our place, on our behalf. And it was Jesus and His conception and incarnation that made all of that possible. The eternal Son took on flesh. He became the God-man to satisfy what we needed for us. The birth led to the life. Life led to death. But the death led to a resurrection. The resurrection led to an ascension. So no birth, there's no substitute. And without a substitute, there's no... There's no sacrifice, there's no obedience, there's no satisfaction, there's no salvation. The purpose of the incarnation, satisfaction. Fourthly was the purpose of identification. In the words of one Christian songwriter, he took on our injured flesh and walked our sod. Why? The writer of Hebrews says, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. So he set his glory aside, humbled himself, so that he could draw near to us and dwell with us as one of us, all for us. It was His incarnation that enabled Him to understand our, our, both our joys and our sorrows. It was His incarnation that, helped, that, that, that allowed Him to understand our aches and our pains, right? our disappointment and our scorn 
and the mistreatment that we undergo, our rejection and our abandonment and even our temptations, all came about through the Incarnation. All of those things that are part of our frail humanity, He took upon Himself. And it's what made the difference between Him simply having compassion and actually being merciful. It was important so that we, as His people, could say, our Savior knows how we feel. But more, way more important than that, it was important for us, as His people, in the midst of our aches and pains, in the midst of our disappointments, in the midst of our scorn and mistreatment and rejection and temptations and abandonment, that we could say, but His was much more than mine. And He took on His, important for us to be for my sake. It was important for us to be able to say, for our sake, for my sake. And that happened through the Incarnation. And finally, the purpose the incarnation, the purpose of exemplification. The meekness of Christ's birth from the nowhere status of His mother um, to the anonymity of His birth, you know, the lack of pomp and circumstance and the, the, the surroundings of the animal stall where He was born to the ordinary nature of being a human baby. All of that places before us an example. And it places before us an example of a life that in many cases you, are, you and I today are, are told to avoid and overcome. Rather than striving for celebrity status, rather than doing epic things for God, Jesus' birth gives us not only permission, but sets the expectation that it's okay to live in obscurity. It's okay to be unnoticed. It's okay to be overlooked. It's okay to simply be faithful in the behind-the-scenes things that never get recognized. His birth says greatness is achieved not by grabbing and taking what you can get and all that you can get, but through submission and service. Laying your life down. Strength and power shouldn't be used to control and take advantage of other people for your own gain, but should be controlled and and restrained for the sake of others. It's Christ who exemplified that kind of life. From his life, from his birth, from his birth to his death, and everywhere in between, he he exemplified what it meant to live a life of love.
And that was all possible through the incarnation. Brothers and sisters, God has drawn near to us and made himself accessible in the person of Jesus Christ, whom the Father appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And I pray that we would make room for him. Christmas is going to come and go before we know it. And making room from him, making room from him for him does not take setting aside four to nine weeks to focus on the incarnation. It should be something that we do throughout the year. Not only making room for him, but also speaking and preaching about him. The incarnation. It should be a year-round thing. And if we don't consciously take the time to slow down, if we don't consciously take the time to turn down the noise and consider the significance of the birth, but more importantly, consider the significance of who was born, right, we're going to miss it. Life will come and go before we know it, in the blink of an eye. The older you get, the faster it goes. So may we make room for Him in the time that we have. May we make room for Him in our lives and in our conversations with friends and family, co-workers. May we make room for Him when we sit in our houses And when we walk by the way, and when we lie down, and when we rise, may we make room for him today and every day. Let's pray.